Hey everyone, it's Rich. Deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, it's everywhere, literally. And we'll get into why that is later in this episode. But whether you're listening to a true crime podcast or watching a crime drama on TV, DNA often seems like some magical power that can right any wrong. And while it is true that DNA can be leveraged for doing good in society, like any good tool, it can also be used to do harm. Recently, a hacker stole the genetic profiles of millions of users of the popular DNA testing company 23andMe. And now, these profiles are for sale on the dark web. So once again, DNA and privacy is back in the news. Different characters, same bad story. As with any danger in life, the key to mitigating it is to arm yourself with knowledge. And today, our goal is to do just that. Colin from Anonymy Labs security and compliance team is back in studio to help us make sense of the privacy landscape as it relates to DNA. As with any data tied back to your personal identity, when it comes to DNA, make certain you understand who has access to it, what will and could be done with it, and whether or not you still own it once it's shared. It's best to understand these issues up front before you share this sensitive information with strangers and weigh them against your own privacy risk profile. If in doubt, the best approach is simply not to play the game. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Privacy Files. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app. And Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. And please check out our newest offering, MySudo VPN, now available in the App Store and Play Store, a consumer VPN that is actually private. Colin, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. And as a member of the security and compliance team, I know this story about DNA and privacy has got to be fascinating for you because privacy policies are involved. What happens to your DNA when you do submit the, the sample to some of these ancestry companies? And of course, laws usually take a while to catch up with the reality of life. No, totally. And it's one, you know, especially we hear so much about this with companies that are getting our data from, you know, what we're doing online or anything else. And I think it's easy to think of, okay, yeah, they want my information. And with this sort of stuff, it's easy to think of, okay, yeah, these companies are following suit. And obviously no one likes the idea of having their like DNA data out there. So it's been fun. Maybe I'm weird that that's fun. But <laughs> it's been fun to go through, check things out in the privacy policies, kind of dig into all this and see just how big of a risk this is. And I know that this is a big thing for a lot of people. It can do a lot of good, you know, if somebody maybe is adopted, they do a DNA test to see kind of, you know, what ancestry they have, where their family came from, stuff like that. There's some really good cases for this DNA stuff. And so it's, it's good to go through, look and see, you know, what risks we have, what benefits can come from it. And, you know, so we can know and make an informed decision. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Your Snowden episode, number two. Look at that. Most number two. That's unbelievable. I'll take the silver. Okay, let's go ahead and start this off. Let's open up a case file on DNA privacy. So the, the big story recently in the news was this 23andMe, I don't know if we're calling it data breach or just stolen data. There's kind of some semantics there. Maybe you want to speak to that. So there was a data breach. Well, 
maybe a data breach, depending on who you ask. 23 Me says it was not a data breach. So it was data that was gathered and compromised by someone that should not have access, which sounds like a data breach. The kicker here is it did not come from someone hacking into, you know, 23andMe, like an internal server or anything like that, or an employee. It came from a user. So they had somebody, you know, they got a bunch of like credentials from the dark web and just started trying to like stuff them through these 23andMe logins, seeing if they can find anything that matches. They found one and through the way that that 23andMe account was set up, they were able to go through and get information on a on a bunch of different people just with some of the sharing and things people had turned on in that in their 23andme account. Now what's interesting too is when you say kind of credential stuffing, if this is a sophisticated hacker, is there some level of automation that's being set up so they 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 grab this big database of stolen credentials from the dark web, do they run it through some program that just automatically keeps trying all of these login credentials in 23andMe, or are they literally just doing this manually? Most likely doing it manually. They have some sort of tool that will just automatically put stuff in. There was, uh, I tried this at work the other day. I didn't like actually make the program or anything, but it was kind of a password manager that you could kind of like program it to just automatically enter certain things into a field. And I forgot what my password was for some account. So I was trying that and like trying all these different combinations and trying to program it to just automatically type them all in. And it almost worked, but then ended up opening like 50 extra tabs and none of them worked and <laughs> weird stuff happened. So it didn't work out. But there are tools now. That's mostly just automatic. We're just going to like pump through all these things as fast as we can and see which one opens the opens the lock, so to speak. And not to really go down a rabbit hole on the dark web. We've done a lot of episodes on that already. But I think that underscores just how much stolen information is available for purchase on the dark web. And see, and that's the thing, too. And people talk about that a lot as well about like the surprising cost of how much some of this stuff, credit card numbers or whatever else might be a lot lower of a cost than you would expect. And I think part of that is that the information may not be that reliable, may not be complete, but a big part of it, I think as well, is just that volume and, you know, supply and demand. There's tons out there, so there's not maybe as much. It's not as rare. You don't need to like put that high of a price on it. I remember listening to uh, a few episodes back of Darknet Diaries, a uh, shout out to Jack Resider. And he was talking about how fascinated he was about the economy of the dark web when it comes to stolen data. You've got somebody who goes out and does the hacking and then turns that over to an intermediary who then brokers a deal with somebody else who's on the dark web, who then puts a price on it and sells it. It's, it's this whole economy. It is. It's so crazy to think about. And that's always been like, I've always thought about like, that'd be a funny, I don't know, for me, I think it'd be kind of a funny movie is like, you know, just talking about someone, they get a new job and they don't realize it's for some like dark web, like hacker company. And they think they're just doing some normal thing. And then they find out like, oh, this is the dark web. And I'm <laughs> running customer service for like someone's ransomware who paid the ransom and their stuff didn't get decrypted or something like that. And part of the funny thing about that is like, just obviously it's sad when it actually happens, but just how true that is that there's, you know, economy, there's jobs, you can get interviews for these places. And I think we mentioned this, I might have mentioned this in a previous podcast that I've heard people say documentation for how to do some of these things and the way all this stuff works is like really well, because, you know, obviously people don't stick around too much to do it. But it's so crazy to think of how much it is almost like, you know, real world, real economy, real jobs. It's just crazy to me. Now I've got an Ancestry account. I've never used 23andMe. Do we know at all? Are they using 2FA or any other secondary level of authentication to get into someone's account or maybe it's just optional from what i've seen yeah just from the research i saw it looks to be optional um obviously it wasn't turned on in this case and you know that's a good thing they recommended that after when they said hey look we've had this thing with this data that was compromised 
it wasn't us. It was a user's account that got compromised and the data came through. So that's something that I recommend is turning on MFA so that if someone is trying to get into your account that you have the codes, they don't. That keeps your account from getting compromised. And I will say, I mean, look, I the world's digital. It's it's tough to stay up on top of everything to make sure that you are as completely private as possible. And I can see the allure of the ancestry research information. I definitely have incredibly interested in it. I'm glad I got my dad to do the DNA sample, which is probably back in 2009, 2010 now. It's been a long time. It was We were one of the early ones, I think, when Ancestry launched that product. And my dad since passed. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I have that data there. It's always going to be there as long as the company is, is still there. And I can I can see why people are fascinated by that. But as I was looking through the privacy policy, just kind of glancing through 23andMe, I, I think we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, that I almost felt like I'm reading a, a privacy policy from a company that has made some changes because something happened that went wrong. I, I wonder that too. You know, like their official kind of statement about this uh, incident does, you know, mention using two-factor authentication. And yeah, looking through, I saw that too, that they have like a section where they talk about that, like, hey, turn this on, make your account secure and everything else. And I wonder if that was always there. I was trying to look it up on the Wayback Machine to see if I can find any evidence of that. Sure. I just didn't get much time to go through and really dig in deep there. But, you know, interesting, it does look like, you know, when stuff like that happens, it's definitely a, probably a good trigger for whoever's in charge of that to go through, review it and be like, okay, what can we change? What should we modify? What should we add in? Yeah, if it's that easy to get access to someone's account, there probably needs to be some changes in the system, the way they set things up. So yeah, 2FA is probably the the logical next step. And I've had, I'm trying to think if there was an account recently I looked at that I had a personal account of mine that seemed like something was going on. I In the past, I've, I know I've had Twitter account was compromised. And at, at that time, it looked like somebody just hacked into it because they wanted to have an account to follow some of their other accounts. So they were just <laughs> trying to, yeah, it, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty innocuous. It wasn't like yeah. anything too scary. But I remember having an account here recently. I can't remember what, which one it was, but you could tell there was some kind of activity that had taken place. And I'm glad now that a lot of um, systems are in place where even if somebody guesses your credentials, if it looks like they're signing in from a different IP address, then they will still block it. And they'll give you a notification saying, hey, it looks like there's a new login coming from a different computer that you have not yet logged in from or oh, registered. Yeah. So that's another helpful piece to know. If a company is using that as another barrier to prevent your accounts from being compromised. For sure. That's a big one. There's more companies that are on board. I think there are still some that are lagging behind, but that's a huge thing. You know, like, hey, this doesn't look like a normal login. Is this actually you? And I've, you know, I see it more and more. I don't know if that's the case here, if that was something that was turned on. My guess is probably not if they were able to get into the account, but you know, as time goes on, that'll become more and more popular for sure. And when it comes to IT in general and just security teams, I mean, you could, you can probably speak to this, but things have changed so much recently. To have a really robust security team these days takes a lot more than it did just five years ago. Which is funny because I always hear about this and I see it a lot on LinkedIn. People talk about like the cybersecurity skills gap and people, you know, think of that like, oh yeah, they need people to work in cybersecurity. So, you know, they think like, yeah, job security, I can get these jobs, make all this money. It's the skills gap and you need the skills and not just kind of that desire. So it's crazy to see just with all these different things that are coming up, new, you know, attacks, new methods, people are getting in to try to like hack stuff or leak data. And it's just a constant keep trying to learn and improve and everything else. So it's definitely a lot more of a challenge to try to keep things under wrap and under control. For the professional bad actor, 
it's a full-time job for them. Yeah, for sure. So they're, they're, they're putting in the hours too. What about any other privacy policy uh, notes that you came across or anything you wanted to highlight before we moved on? Now, I know this is, like I said, kind of at the beginning that I was really interested to look into this because I know that there's people that have these different needs and stuff like that. And especially with 23andMe, they started out kind of as for more DNA tests for kind of health related things. And always made me wonder, I, you know, did one of these DNA tests, not for 23andMe. And I always had that thought, is there an issue if this happens? Like, I don't know if I want my data out there like that. And looking through both of these, so I looked through both 23andMe and I looked through Ancestry as well. And it, they're both pretty clear. I did like 23andMe's policy, mostly just that it's very easy to go through, not a lot of legal ease, easy to understand. And it's even like a nice kind of, you know, UI, like a nice web page. It doesn't look like a legal document. Just looking at it gives you drowsiness or something like that, like you might fall asleep. <laughs> and, you know, it was very reassuring to see in both cases that you do own that data. And probably in a lot of respects, thanks to some of these regulations, GDPR, and some of the state regulations we have in like California, Virginia, other states here in the U.S., that you have that control of the data. You can delete the data if you want. But you have that control. They're not saying they own it. They're not sharing it with other people just for fun. You have a lot of control as to what you want to do with the data, if you want to keep it there, if you want to sign up for like one of their research studies that they're working with some other company to do or some other organization. So it was good to see in both cases for both those companies that you do have that control. You control what happens to it. And if you don't want the data there anymore, you can tell them that you don't want it and it's gone. We did a, I think it was an episode we did, I think it was the OSINT one actually, where we were talking about how it'd be easier if somebody just had access to your DNA and whatever they want to do with it, whatever's possible, then they go for it from there. But because of all of this rich data now through health apps, you can actually, if you get enough of it, you can kind of reverse engineer and figure out if, you know, Colin's got a chronic condition. That's a good point, actually. I never considered that. And that's, I don't know, that's an interesting one to see kind of what someone might do in that sort of case. Like if someone has that information, like they know I have high blood pressure, like, I don't know, maybe they'll just like keep putting salt on my food when I'm not looking or something, <laughs> but I don't know. It's, it's just crazy to see with some of that information that if people can get it, how much you can kind of reverse engineer and kind of infer and things like that. Especially if somebody seems to be very unhealthy and has some kind of chronic condition. And if that falls into the wrong hands, could that be used to make employment decisions? Like whether or not somebody gets hired or... Yeah, that's true. It's, I remember seeing that in the 23andMe thing. I forget the name of the specific regulation, but there's specifically some sort of regulation that prevents, you know, that makes it illegal for like employers or health insurance providers yeah. to get some of that genetic information. The interesting thing is it said it does not apply to like life insurance and like a couple other, I think really? it was like long-term disability insurance or something like that. Mm. So, I mean, I guess that's still kind of a loophole, but. Yeah. And we're going to get into a little bit too in a, uh, later in this episode about law enforcement gaining access to your DNA and, and how that can be uh, problematic if you're just submitting your samples oh, yeah. to whoever. And, and, and so that brings me to this little topic here. So there was a, I think it was just an article from the New York Times from a few years ago, and they were talking about kind of in general consumer protection around DNA testing kits. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of this. They were talking to an individual, his name is Dr. James Hazel, I believe. At the time, is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Genetic Privacy and Identity in Community Settings. And uh, he was talking about how there are fewer protections for your data with consumer DNA testing kits than there would be if you were taking a medical test. So HIPAA, of course, 
the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act definitely covers, like, so you go to the doctor's office, you get a blood sample taken. You definitely have a whole higher level set of protections around that. But if you're just submitting your DNA somewhere, that changes the game when it comes to these DNA tests, like at Ancestry, 23andMe, and, and whatever other companies are doing this. And so he was quoted saying, in the United States, if you're, if you're talking about genetic data that's generated outside of the healthcare setting, there's a relatively low baseline of protection. And that's provided generally by uh, the Federal Trade Commission. So the FTC, although it's not specific to genetic data, has the ability to police unfair and deceptive business practices across all industries. Other than that, there are really no laws in the United States that apply specifically. So in other words, basically what we're saying here is if you want to make sure your data is safe, uh, you're going to have to do the unthinkable, and that's read the company's privacy policy, right? I mean, that's right. and nobody wants to do that. I understand, but it's just like insurance. Nobody thinks about it until it's too late, right? You yeah, know, for oh, sure. Gosh, I just got in a car accident. Why did I let my insurance lapse? <laughs> so, yeah, and so kind of wrapping this part up, the policy will tell you what data the company collects, how it's used, and what control you have over it. Because a lot of times there's this question about who really owns the data. So you hand over a sample of saliva to 23andMe. Do you, Colin, still own that data? And that, that sample and the data around it, or does that company have it now that you've transferred that sample over to them? So if a company deceptively violates its own policy, the Federal Trade Commission can step in. But beyond that, you really just have to read the company's policy and be careful before signing up. And ultimately, if if there's too much in terms of ambiguity or question marks, just don't do it. That's a fair point. The catch there being we have some of these update um, ancestries when I was looking it up says it was last updated about like a month ago and there'll be big changes. That was, I guess that's a plus one for ancestry is, you know, they show like kind of some of the explanations of like, Hey, this is what we added. And from what I saw from like their last edit, it was stuff specifically to some like newer state privacy regulations or something like that. But yeah, it's good to go through, keep those in mind. Luckily, we haven't seen anything, you know, like too big or bad happening with like misuse of this data. If that does happen in the future, I'm sure that, you know, there will be there'll be a law that follows. Now, you mentioned as you were doing research for this episode that you came across some information about where the actual samples of your DNA are stored, because I've wondered about that because mine was done over 10 years ago. And I wonder, oh, yeah. do they still have it? See, and that's like, as I was reading through, like I said, with my test, I think I remembered when they asked it first, like, hey, do you want to save, like, do you want us to keep, like, the physical DNA sample, you know, in case we want to, like, test it again for something in the future or anything like that? I think I said no to that. But it sounds like these companies, they either have, like, a partnership or maybe kind of like a subsidiary that's still part of the same, like, you know, parent company that handles all the DNA, you know, processing, the lab and everything else. And probably the storage goes along with that as well. I see on both cases, they say that there's, you know, there's like physical, you know, there's like physical security controls that, you know, prevent and limit that access outside of people that actually need it. So, but as far as specifics, you know, I'm, I don't think they're going to say, hey, it's over at this building. <laughs> but I think the takeaway was, and again, I, I just glanced through the 23andMe privacy policy, but it yeah. sounds like if you really wanted to, you could tell them to destroy the sample. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I wonder what kind of validation is involved there just to know that that actually happened. The empty tube that you spit into, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that takes us to an article from back in June of this year, uh, the Federal Trade Commission. Interestingly, the way they wrote, wrote this article, too, I didn't expect uh, 
this kind of tone coming from a government organization. It was, it was, it was more uh, conversational. But they were talking about genetic information, security around this data, and really helping people think more about all the other ramifications as a result of just submitting your DNA. Like you're going to be talking about law enforcement having access to your DNA. And, and it's just, it's so much more to think about. All I want to think about is, Hey, I just want to know where my family came from. Yeah. And now you're telling me law enforcement might be able to subpoena this information and bad actors are doing weird stuff with this. And now they're going to clone me and what else? (laughs) (laughs) So this article starts off with, it says, some secrets are so secret that no one knows about them. Until recently, that described the secrets locked within our DNA. But a key to customer confidence in in the burgeoning genetic testing marketplace is the extent to which people can depend on a company's promise that, quote, your secret's safe with us. In its first case focused on the privacy and security of genetic information, the Federal Trade Commission alleges that San Francisco-based Vitagene, Inc., now known as OneHealth.io, failed to live up to its promises and unfairly changed material privacy terms without customers' consent. The proposed settlement and other recent actions sent a loud and clear message that the FTC is fully committed to the protection of consumers' health information. So you you tell me, Colin, that that's a no-no, right? That's I don't know, that's interesting. And it just makes me think of like those privacy, because you know, we'll get those emails for whatever stuff you've signed up for, right? Saying like, hey, we've updated our privacy policy. If you still use our services by such and such date you consent to, you know, the new terms of the privacy policy. And I mean, as much as we don't read it the first time, I don't think we're going through the second time for much <laughs> for much else. So that's, yeah, that's a little a little unsavory, I think. And I mean, obviously the FTC agreed because, yeah. you know, this happened. I still remember the early days of Facebook and it happened all the time where you would all of a sudden you'd hear through the grapevine, oh, Facebook just updated its settings and, <laughs> and everything would go back to default, like in their favor, not for you. Oh, yeah. And you'd have to go back into settings and, and, and put all your privacy settings back in place. And that happened many, many times. I'm like, wow. I just remember those ones where people would post and be like, if you don't put this post on to say, like, I do not allow Facebook to, you know, give consent to access my photos or anything like that, that they'll do it. And you know, that pops up every, like, I don't know, however often. I haven't seen it lately, but it just makes me think of that. And it's one of those, like, I don't know, just those things people post. And I'm like, oh, not this again. <laughs> so this FTC article, it continues. It says, after consumers paid between $29 and $259, sent a saliva sample to Vitagene and answered an online questionnaire about their health history, family history, and lifestyle, the company provided them with a personalized health report. The report included the customer's full name and an assessment of their risks for developing a host of health problems. Now, using images of locks, keys, and secure clouds, the company's website was replete with claims about the care with which it promised to handle customers' genetic information. And and then they go on to give some examples of the company's pledges. So one of them was, quote, we use industry standard security practices to store your DNA sample, your test results, and any other personal data you provide. Another another, um, piece of verbiage, rock solid security. We use the latest technology and exceed industry standard security practices to protect your privacy. Another one was Vitagene collects, processes, and stores your personal information in a responsible, transparent, and secure environment that fosters our customers' trust and confidence. Another one said, you're in control of your data. We've heard this many times. I think right. 23andMe, I think, takes that position. You can delete your data at any time. This will remove your information from all of our servers. And then a final example was 
Three of the ways we protect your privacy, one, your results and DNA sample are stored without your name or any other common identifying information. Two, Vitagene destroys your physical DNA sample, saliva sample, after it has been analyzed. And three, we don't share your information with any third party without your explicit consent. But according to the FTC, Vitagene was more talk than action. And they give a link to the complaint for details, but essentially they weren't doing that. And so there was a settlement in this case. But I just I wanted to get your thoughts on how do you even get to that point where you're, you're playing those games? See, and that's the interesting thing, because a lot of that, you know, the stuff that it said about their privacy and, you know, what they've said about their privacy policy and everything is a lot of it is similar to some of these other, you know, these other companies we've been talking about. And like your other article said, with no kind of specific set regulation, it's basically, you know, the privacy policy is kind of the governing body there, you know, the governing law, so to speak, where there's still kind of that element of like, okay, well, I trust you guys aren't going to do something bad. And I feel like I've leaned more on the side of some of these bigger companies. I feel like they're maybe, they recognize that they have that bigger target and they're like, okay, we really need to toe the line because if it gets out that we've done something bad, then that's really going to hurt. But just, it's an interesting thing to think about and just see that, you know, a lot of these same things are being said, but just because someone says it, a company says it doesn't necessarily mean it's the case. So I think that's a good thing as well too, especially if you're looking up like some smaller, maybe lesser known DNA thing, maybe do a little bit extra research, see if they have a history of some of these maybe privacy issues and I, not even just with DNA in general, you know, see if it's a smaller company, if they're reputable, if they toe the line with some of this privacy stuff and with how they handle your data. And, and according to the FTC, Vitagene allegedly didn't use built-in measures to secure the information and instead stored it in buckets that made it possible for anyone with internet access to see oh. the detailed reports of nearly 2,400 Vitagene customers. Oh, yeah, I know what they're talking about. So what, what, what does that mean? Talk, talk to so, us in layman's terms. What are buckets? That sounds to me like, so that's kind of like a cloud computing thing. Basically, it's just a, you know, it's just like a big, like almost you can think of it as like a storage unit, you know, a bucket that just, you put a bunch of data in there. And those, you know, obviously should be turned off for external access. It sounds like that was not the case. And I don't think that's something they did necessarily malicious, but that's a... Uh, pretty big thing that I think, I don't know, when when did I say this came out? Uh, this article was written in June of this year, 2023. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, I think there should be alerts that are saying like, hey, just so you know, this bucket is open to the web. Like anybody can, you know, access it unless you should probably turn that <laughs> off. But that's, yeah, that, oh, that hurts to hear. It says also accessible raw genetic data of at least 227 other customers, sometimes identified by first name. The FTC says the company didn't even encrypt the data. <laughs> That's, uh, wow. <laughs> didn't restrict access to it, didn't monitor access, and didn't inventory it to help ensure its security. Yeah, see, and that's probably one of the more surprising things with a lot of this kind of, you know, like cybersecurity sort of stuff is how often companies will not do some of these basic things. Uh, my boss shared us shared me an article the other day that showed like even with like administrators that showed like this list of like top administrator passwords for like you know certain systems and they're not much better than some of the ones you see on other websites for normal people's <laughs> passwords you know one two three four five six or whatever the default is for whatever device they're logging into so it's a little <laughs> sad how often this happens but it's I feel nervous now I'm like tensing up <laughs> and then back to like where those samples are actually stored they completed their I guess series of complaints here was saying that Vitagene did not take steps to ensure that a lab that analyzed many of the DNA samples had a policy in place to destroy them. I don't know. That just makes me think of these companies that will say, 
you know, you'll say, hey, look, we have control of this data. And I think this is better with bigger companies because they're going to experience this a lot more. But a smaller company is like, hey, we have this policy in place that if someone asks us to delete their data, this is how we'll do it. We haven't had anybody ask us in like five, 10 years since we've you know put this in our policy. So I'm assuming it never happens. And so maybe someone does request it and you're like, well, I don't know what to do. The policy gets lost somewhere. And then, you know, they're just like, oh, we'll just tell them it's gone and we'll delete it. Oh, and then they also talk about that there were multiple warnings to give them an opportunity to rectify the situation. So there was a, a first warning was back in July of 2017 where there was a message from the cloud service provider that Vitagene had configured its data to, quote, allow read access from anyone on the Internet. The email included links to an account console and information about how to restrict access, and apparently Vitagene did not respond. You'll hear about companies that do that, too. It's like they know they've been told, hey, you need to fix this thing, and they you know, they just don't do it, and then works out worse for them in the long run. So I what, guess that's Why do you a, think that is? I mean, obviously, with today, how can you not know the liability involved with making missteps like that? See, and that's like, if you're getting a warning like that, I feel like that is one that you'd probably want to tell the line. There are others that are more cases where it's like, hey, we've been breached, but they just say like, hey, we'll just, and maybe there's a requirement that you have to report that breach within a certain amount of days, but they'll say, hey, look, we're just going to keep this under wraps. No one has to know. We'll get it under control. And then that doesn't get under control. It comes out and then you're on the news. So the second warning came from a security company that conducted a web app penetration test in November of 2018. And it found, quote, that uploaded DNA data was being stored without any access controls. The complaint alleges that Vitagene again failed to rectify the situation. That one makes a little more, not sense, but I can kind of see the context more where they had maybe like some external auditors or pen testers come in. It's like, hey, we noticed this, you should fix it. And they're like, yeah, we'll put it on the to-do list. And then it just stayed on the list and never got done. Ouch. And the third warning came in June of 2019. There was an email from a security researcher sent to Vitagene's support inbox. After the researcher contacted the media, the <laughs> FTC says the company finally investigated its public exposure of customers' health information. However, because Vitagene hadn't monitored who had access or downloaded the data, it couldn't determine who else might have seen the information. And it just, it keeps going on and on and on. But there was a settlement and it is kind of that, I think it's kind of the FTC's message of this is our first warning that, hey, we're watching this stuff now. Oh, yeah. And so it's time to get your act together. Yeah, for sure. If an independent researcher is telling the media, then that's a good sign that there's an issue that they, you know, well, obviously they ignored it with the past two other warnings. And it kind of follows up with, you know, what, what are some takeaways from this? What can companies do based on the FTC's action in the Vitagene case? And so one of them is just, hey, sensitive health information, including genetic data, requires intensive care, right? For yeah, sure. No kidding. Make, make sure you're doing everything you can. Make sure you've got a really tightened up policy, a privacy policy, and, uh, and continue to keep it updated. Because like you said, times change very quickly, the rules, laws, general best practices, and another uh, takeaway is just because data is in your possession doesn't mean it's yours, right? Right. You hope. Right. <laughs> That's another one. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that too here in a, in a little bit. And when it comes to security, keeping your data in the cloud doesn't mean you can keep your head in the clouds. I like that one. <laughs> That's getting creative and cheeky, honest, the FTC. That's, that's, yeah. that's adorable. Hey, they're up with the times now. That's right. And the final uh, takeaway is respond to credible warnings about potential security lapses. So if somebody is telling you you need to go investigate, you probably better do it. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, Somebody's helping you out. And now, speaking of 
all the things that can be done with your DNA, which I don't want to think about, but you have to because it's 2023. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this this nuance, this emerging area around DNA and how law enforcement can subpoena that information with a warrant. So there's an article from ZDNet from uh, November 2019 that talks about a judge that approved a warrant to get information from a DNA database. It wasn't from you know one of these bigger companies. It was from one called GED Match. And the article just goes on and talks about this is kind of a big, you know, this is a pretty big deal. A judge said, hey, look, yeah, you can go ahead and you can request this genetic information for someone to help investigate crimes, whatever the case is like that. And it's interesting to see, especially now, I've heard a lot of people say this, that like from so many people that watch crime shows now, that there's so many people that think like if there's no DNA evidence, you can't like the person's not guilty. Like if you don't have that actual DNA evidence, there's enough doubt that they you can't convict them or something like that. So it's interesting to see. And that's when I know that probably scares a lot of people thinking, well, I have my data in here and I'm good for now. But I don't know, maybe I snap one day or something like that. Or maybe I'm like framed and I have my DNA there. And so whatever law enforcement agency can just ask Ancestry or 23andMe, like, hey, can we confirm that it's this person? It's interesting to think, and it's easy to kind of go quick into, I guess, worst case scenario where they're, you know, they're not even like investigating anything anymore. They're just, um, these police officers are just asking these companies for this data. They're just going in, like sneaking in, taking it. So Ancestry and 23andMe both have, they release transparency reports that say, hey, this is how many requests we've gotten from law enforcement. There are some that were valid, some that weren't, that we didn't respond to. For example, 23andMe, so they have like, they've tracked this since 2015. Since then, they've had a total of 11 requests that ended up affecting 15 accounts. Overall, that time, that's not very much. And that is, I don't know, for me, a little bit reassuring. You know, we can think that like, you know, the police are just going to be overreaching, trying to take advantage of everything. Like we've talked about and people have talked about with cell phones, like they want that cell phone data. It looks like here that's not necessarily as much of a concern. Ancestry has their own thought, their own reports as well. They don't keep like a running total from a certain date. They just release every six months. So from this past six-month report, which was 2023, January to June, they had a total of seven requests, a little more than 23 and me. They have some very specific stuff. They say they're not going to release anything that's overly broad. If you say, you know, give me all your DNA information, they're going to say, well, no, that's, you know, not really reasonable. We can't do that. So I think they realize that people are concerned about that as well. And so they do try to scale that back and say, look, we, you know, we'll help law enforcement, but there are these certain frameworks, these things that we're going to stand by. What is an example? I guess, let's say you've got a, a, a family member who is under investigation for a, a crime. Let's say it's a felony. And so they, they go in and they grab your DNA that has some similar characteristics to maybe a brother or a, a, a first cousin and then use that to convict somebody? That's one. And it's interesting to see. So they've said an ancestry will specify a couple of things. They say that like we can't be used to like identify victims or kind of this like investigation process. But that could be a case. I've heard of one kind of like people bringing up a concern of maybe kind of the other way around where, say, I commit a crime and I don't have any DNA data in any of these things, but my brother does. So they like get my brother's DNA and they compare it to the DNA at the crime scene and say, well, it's mostly a match. This matches our suspect. So we've got the guy. Got it. And so there's probably a couple different scenarios, a couple different ways it can work. But those are ones that, yeah, some people have brought up. Whew. 
gosh, it's scary to think Man. about. Yeah, it's I don't know, I don't know. People I think can sometimes get really riled up and be like, oh yeah, the police they're they're way overstepping their bounds. This is happening all the time. It was interesting to see that yeah, this isn't happening quite as much as other things. That was the other interesting thing about Ancestry is that you know with their subpoenas they had let me see if I can get the exact number that in this past six month thing so they had seven you know like requests for subpoenas or search warrants none of them were DNA ones they were all like looking for their other kind of like non DNA data Mm. so that was an interesting thing to see as well when they go into this they they're not sure if whoever has an account with one of these companies, right? It's just a phishing expedition. That's that's kind of true. That's uh, 23 and me, and that's probably why they have so little is they say that like we need the first and last name. We need like actual concrete contact information of the person that you want this data on. And I'd have to look through, but I think Ancestry kind of follows suit and so, you know, you can't just say, you know, we're looking for something a little more vague or generic. <laughs> like we need this specific person. You need to have their name, maybe an email address, some way that we can identify them so we know, okay, this is the person, this is the data, we can get them. Yeah. The takeaway here again is if it's if you're giving something away to somebody else, there's always this possibility. Yeah. That and not saying you're trying to avoid crimes, but it could also put you in compromising positions. Let's say if you're somebody who is maybe in the public eye, maybe you're oh, a target, yeah. maybe if you're a politician or something. For sure. And now now you've got a whole team of people always trying to dig up stuff on you, right? See, and that's the thing I think with a lot of this DNA stuff at all, like as a general person, it is like very specific things. It's kind of like the, uh, the zero click things we talked about. Like it's not something that they're going to go and infect the masses with this spyware. It is for some of these high profile targets. Now for me, I either have aspirations or a big head. I like to think that one day I may be one of these big profile targets, but (laughs) for the time being, it's not that much of a concern. But going back to the privacy policy for now, especially backed up by GDPR and these other regulations, you have these tools available if you don't want that data out there, if you're concerned about that, but you still want to see, you know, where you come from, maybe certain, you know, like health things that are found in your DNA. You can go in, get the test, get the results. And then after that, like as soon as you see everything, print off a copy, save it, whatever, and then just request they delete it. I think you and I had had this conversation before offline where being a part of this Ancestry.com DNA test, I think it's been something like five or six updates since I submitted that. Because again, as they get more data coming in, of course, they can refine your ancestry, your, your countries of origin, I guess. And I was wondering, like, once they have taken all, once they've done the sequencing and they put all of that, the ones and zeros and whatever you want to call it, into a computer, they can continue to update that information over time as they get more data in without having to go back and test the actual physical sample again. It's like, why do they still need that physical sample? That's one. And I know there's certain things. That's one I've wondered too. Like, I think I heard one that was like the ancestor recently really, and maybe, yeah, I'm talking out of school or something, but that they just released a thing that you can go through and you can see kind of like traits and, you know, like different traits in your DNA and say like, Hey, that comes, you know, this trait you have comes from this specific area or anything like that 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 required the stuff to get tested against. So maybe there's something like that. Oh, and right. it may be, they've both talked about volunteering, you know, having this stuff, which you totally opt in. It's not something that happens without your consent for, you know, like I mentioned earlier, these research, you know, these people doing genetic research. And that might be a case where they need the physical samples as well for some reason. That but makes sense. yeah, I'm not, I don't totally know the, the ins and outs on why they still need the actual sample. That's where I wear the half of a tinfoil hat and I go, okay. <laughs> Why do you still need that? Yeah. Anything else on the law enforcement 
warrants because it reminds me too of the ring doorbell camera because you oh, get yeah. stories about the warrants or sometimes not even a warrant right ring is just literally if it's supposedly under the context of a immediate emergency they're just sharing information and even in san francisco i believe i don't know if it's still going on i think it was a city ordinance where they're basically just sharing that information in real time or you like law enforcement can just have access to those videos if they want just again, once you're sharing stuff online, once you're dealing with the cloud, if you're connected to the internet, you have to be aware that if there's information that's on there that you don't want to be shared, maybe you probably need to go offline. Yeah. People talk about the DNA evidence. This is good. It's helping us catch bad people. And, you know, I can see that if there's, you know, some like horrible crime that's happened and you can help the victims or the families get closure, that's perfectly fine. A tidbit that I forgot to mention with this thing was it wasn't just like they said, hey, here's a warrant. Uh, that law enforcement told the smaller company, here's a warrant, that a detective of a police department mentioned that he was able to get a warrant that allowed him to basically just have, you know, kind of full run of the of their database. So it wasn't just a specific person. So that's kind of why people were getting a little nervous, a little freaked out. But, you know, I think that has created some backlash. I haven't heard of any more recent examples of stuff like that happening. And hopefully that stays the case. But ultimately, I guess that's up for the courts to decide what's unreasonable, what's an overly broad search and stuff like that. Yeah, what you want to get away from is the potential that you have all this data and you can start profiling based on all kinds of characteristics that you shouldn't be profiling on. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's switch gears to a shocking kind of story, I guess. I, I remember reading this earlier this year. This, this article is from the Smithsonian Magazine back in May of 2023. And the title is, Scientists Can Now Pull Human DNA from Air and water, raising privacy concerns. And the, the subheader is, environmental DNA helps monitor elusive and endangered animals, but it could be an ethical minefield when used with humans. Oh, here we go. So it starts out with, humans are constantly shedding tiny pieces of DNA from sweat, spit, blood, and skin. And these microscopic fragments litter the environment across the earth. Now scientists at the University of Florida have discovered they can easily collect quality human DNA from air, sand, and water, raising a host of ethical questions about privacy and consent. That is, that's so weird. Like <laughs> You think about just everywhere you go, you just, if you could, if you put a glasses on, they could just see all of the exhaust that you're just leaving behind. <laughs> right. Like I'm just thinking of, I don't know, I'm thinking like if I go out for a run and I look around and there's someone like behind me with a funnel or something in a jar, like I don't know how this works, but a little dustpan and a yeah. broom sweeping it up. <laughs> like that is, so, that's just so crazy that that can happen, but wow. So uh, there's a lead researcher, his name is David Duffy. He's a zoologist studying wildlife disease genomics at the University of Florida. And he was telling this to uh, Katie Hunt at CNN, quote, all this very personal ancestral and health related data is freely available in the environment and is simply floating around in the air right now. So, yeah, all this like data stored at Ancestry and 23andMe, it's just a moot point. I mean, yeah, it's just out there. So initially, uh, Duffy, the, the researcher, a zoologist, uh, initially Duffy and his colleagues set out to collect environmental DNA, which they call eDNA, from sea turtle tracks to study uh, viral tumors that can harm the animals. While the team expected to pick up some genetic information from other species, including humans, they weren't sure how informative that DNA would be. So to find out, the team scooped up genetic fragments from oceans, rivers, and sand in Florida, and they also traveled to a remote island rarely visited by humans and gathered samples from the sand there. In all locations except the remote island, they found high-quality human DNA for analysis and sequencing, and so the team published their findings uh, Monday in the journal, 
nature, ecology, and evolution. So high quality. So that it didn't have to, you know, you get that kit from Ancestry or 23andMe and it's this very sanitized little vial that oh, you spit yeah. in and you can't touch it. You got to wear gloves and all this stuff. And they're just like, ah, it's just, it's all over the place now. It's on the ground. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so much for that, right? Yeah. And it goes on to say that with even these small bits of genetic material, the team was able to uncover much more information than they expected about the people they came from. The researchers found mutations linked to autism, diabetes, eye diseases, and cardiac diseases. And one person's eDNA revealed a mutation linked to a disease that causes neurological impairment and sometimes death. Wow. <laughs> I mean, again, yeah, just, just DNA out there. just laying around. And the demographic information found in the samples, quote, broadly matched, end quote, those of people in the area where the eDNA was found. So I guess they did some kind of like a like a sample size testing just to see how closely correlated it, the the findings were with the people that kind of lived in that population. So, and the team could even determine the genetic ancestry of the locals. Really? That's so crazy. And yeah, like you said, with the ancestry and like this, the sanitized like tube and, you know, you're not supposed to like eat or drink anything like 30 minutes before you like, you know, spit in the tube or whatever. Like, and, they're just finding this stuff out. That's so crazy. can imagine where would this technology be in 20, 30, 40 years? Oh, right. I mean, how can you, how can you stay private? So if you got somebody hot on your trail who wants to find out more <laughs> about you and now they've got knowledge of this, just again, the dustpan and the little broom just behind <laughs> Colin as he's walking down the sidewalk. That's like, man, this is... Like, this is weird, but I don't know. I think this is kind of cool that they were able to do all this stuff. <laughs> to, to test the test technique further, the team collected water samples from a river in Ireland and found human DNA at each site except for the remote tributary where the river starts. They also gathered air samples from a sea turtle hospital in Florida with six volunteer workers and matched the eDNA bits to the staff members, the animal patients and common animal viruses. Researchers had four known participants walk in the sand and the eDNA gleaned from their footprints revealed parts of their sex chromosomes. Wow. Wow. eDNA is incredibly useful for scientists. It allows them to collect vital data on animals without disturbing them. Biologists can monitor elusive or endangered species for disease-causing pathogens and biodiversity, and public health officials can use eDNA to track diseases in wastewater. But the technology has advanced rapidly in the last decade, and the research team now worries it could also be used for malicious purposes, including surveilling individuals and minority groups or those with genetically driven disabilities. Anna Lewis from Harvard University, a researcher studying the ethical, legal, and social implications of genetic research, she mentions... Uh, this gives a powerful new tool to authorities. There's internationally plenty of reason, I think, to be concerned. I would agree. I'm just like trying to wrap my brain around. Like this is just so it's so crazy that you can do this now. And additionally, police have used DNA, of course, you know, to solve crimes at the crime scenes and generate a rough predicted image of a suspect in the past. It's possible that eDNA could be used to implicate someone in a crime. Despite scientists not fully understanding how it works, moves, or degrades, uh, Duffy says in a statement that policymakers need to start talking about and developing regulations around this new technology, quote, we need a political discussion of expectations of privacy in the public space, in particular for DNA. We cannot avoid shedding DNA in the public space. A computational biologist at the University of Leuven in Belgium who has studied China's DNA surveillance but was not involved with the new study tells CNN. 
also finally uh, ends this with a quote, we should, however, not panic. And I am always afraid of precautions that would make research grind to a halt. It is a delicate balance to find. I think that's a good point. You know, there's a balance. Obviously, you're concerned about privacy, but this is being used for all these, I guess you could say they're good research purposes. I just wonder, I don't talk about that law enforcement thing, like, you know, how will that work? If you can, if someone gets there really fast in the crime scene and is able to get this DNA, they kind of have a profile. How far away can the DNA drift? Like if I'm somewhere, you know, like a mile away, but the wind like blows my DNA somewhere, am I suddenly yeah. implicated? There's a, there's a lot of questions there. So that'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's how basically those tracking dogs can find you. I mean, they're they're picking up because I guess that's true. their yeah. noses are so sensitive. They're picking yeah. up the traces of you that you've left behind. So it makes sense. It's just, we can't see it with our human eyes, but yeah. as the technology evolves, I'm sure that will be much easier to do. And maybe the, the DNA research and science will get a lot easier. It'll be robot dogs now that pick up the DNA and then just like fly like a drone to track you. <laughs> All right. I got one more story before we wrap this up. We have touched on this before in past episodes, especially in particular one. And I know it's this, uh, concept of newborns being tested for diseases at birth, right? You, oh, right. Yeah. You get a little blood sample. Uh, and apparently in the United States, I think that pretty much happens to everybody now. And the question is, is where does that blood go and how long oh, is it yeah. stored? So this is an article from the ACLU, and this comes from April of this year, 2023. And it just uh, it's titled, Widespread Newborn DNA Sequencing Will Worsen Risks to Genetic Privacy. And it starts out with, Newborn screening programs are a vital public health measure implemented in the U.S. and across the world, with about one-third of babies born globally undergoing some screening. As a part of this program in the United States, nearly every baby born has blood drawn soon after birth. And I believe you now have uh, – you're, you're a dad, so – Yeah. You Did you? I mean, yeah, they did, they did the screening and stuff. I mean, I don't know. It's – Did you track it? No, but it's all, I don't know, it's all a blur and there's all this stuff. And I mean, you know, like they say, it's like a health thing. Like we want to make sure the baby's okay for all this stuff. So you're like, sure. yeah, please do what you got to do. Like, you know, we don't want our baby to have some, you know, some sort of issue that we don't know about. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it, and it says that, yeah. so basically the blood, like you said, it's being tested for a, a panel of potentially life-threatening inherited disorders. And current newborn screening programs have had, you know, have been invaluable both in lowering medical costs through early detection and intervention and in decreasing the toll of human suffering, of course, that comes from a late diagnosis. But this innovation is rapidly outpacing the law, leaving families a little bit vulnerable, of course, to privacy invasions. You never know where this stuff goes. And I think a lot of it, again, it's back to like privacy in general, this knowledge gap. I mean, there's only so much you can spend time on, right? I mean, oh, totally, 24 yeah. hours in the day. And it's like, yeah. if, if I spent time on all this, I'd probably go crazy. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> So in October of last year, 2022, a global consortium of scientists and other newborn DNA sequencing researchers convened to discuss a bold possibility for future care, that every baby born in the U.S. could have their full genome sequenced as an addition to existing newborn screening programs. How do you feel about that? I could see that being good, but the question is, you know, what happens to the data? Who has it? Like, if they just, like... I'd be totally for it if they're like, okay, yeah, this is what we found. And they just like give you a copy of like on a paper and that's it. But I have a feeling that's not totally the case. And it continues. It says this means that doctors would have on record all of the baby's DNA in addition to drawing their blood and testing for specific known inherited disorders that can cause serious health problems at birth. The data derived from the blood samples now is fairly limited and only relevant to the baby's health at birth. This includes data 
on the date, location, and time of birth, the mother's name and address, the disorder being screened for, and a value indicating whether the baby is likely to have a particular hereditary disorder. Then it gets back into this area of law enforcement. So as they're saying here in this article, it doesn't take much imagination to guess how this full genome sequencing could be abused. Last year, a public records lawsuit in New Jersey revealed a worrying new trend of police subpoenaing a newborn's blood sample to implicate a child's relative in a crime. Really? That is, okay, that is very, wow. <laughs> Apparently I'm not that creative because they said it's not hard to imagine and I did not see that coming at all. <laughs> Because of the lack of regulations surrounding DNA privacy, police in some states are able to access these samples, generate wildly detailed genetic profiles from them, and then use the, those profiles in criminal investigations. These samples, which were intended only to protect babies from life-threatening diseases, are instead being used by law enforcement to gather our highly personal and detailed genetic information and to generate family trees dating back generations by uploading the DNA profile to consumer genetic databases operated by companies like GED Match. Moreover, police department systematic mistreatment, of course, of marginalized Americans may place them in greater danger of their genetic information being used against them and or compelled from them. So it goes on to talk about how you can, you know, profile people based on ethnicity, a variety of, of, of things. And it's just back to how much of this information should be available to police and under what context. I mean, it should be very specific to an actual, yeah. you know, here's a particular threat. Yeah. And not just a, a fishing expedition. I mean, obviously, if the police have been doing it so far, the courts have been at least in, I think, New Jersey. Is that what it said? Correct. Yeah. yeah I've been leaning more toward the, yeah, that's fine side. But that's uh, it's just a little weird to like a baby that, you know, you have their blood sample and they're using that to try to find like a relative. And uh, it also talks about uh, how currently different states have different policies on the length of time those blood samples are stored. That's always a concern. Oh, yeah. I guess there, there can be a legitimate scientific reason, but I, I'd, I'd like to hear what the uh, explanation is. Now, some states are storing samples for only a few months and others are storing them indefinitely. Uh, similarly, policies governing the data associated with the blood samples, do, they do vary state by state. For example, more than a quarter of states have no policy barring law enforcement access, and some states protect the blood sample, but not the associated data. And few states protect both. Well, there you go again. So you've got the sample. Yeah. You've got a different set of rules for the sample versus the data that's been extracted. See, that's like, I hear about this and, you know, people talk about, you know, talk to your representatives or something like that. And with so much other stuff going on, I guess, politically speaking, that, if they have like, you know, some sort of survey thing, like, okay, all these people are talking about this and people are talking about that. And we got like this one person that decided to talk about how long we're storing these blood samples for newborns. I have a feeling that there won't be much changing in that front for, for quite a little bit. It does say it, it, it concludes by uh, talking about how some states such as New Jersey have proposed new bills aimed at limiting police's ability to access newborn screening samples. While bills like these are a step in the right direction, they must also explicitly prohibit law enforcement from accessing both the sample itself and any data associated with the screening program. The newborn screening program is too vital a public health intervention to be hijacked by police's constant search for new methods to access our most personal information. Just as this program may change as technology advances, so must the protections states put in place. Again, this comes from the ACLU. Yeah, see, and that's, oh, we go back to this whole thing, you know, like, are you in control of your data in this case that, you know, you don't sound too in control? And obviously these other places, if they get like a valid subpoena or search warrant that's not too broad, then they'll respond to it. But this one's, 
just mm. a little weird. I never really considered that. So that was some creative thinking to go through the newborn samples, like, you know, and everything to get that data, that evidence. How's a, uh, a life in a cabin in the mountains of Montana sound about right now? <laughs> I was thinking more it's South Dakota, but I think South Dakota. that can work too, yeah. <laughs> or Antarctica. I mean, it's really becoming difficult to be 100% completely off the grid. Right. If, if that's what you wanted to do, it's like, it's just as technology evolves, it's remarkable to think just how much that you're leaving out there, just traces of you biologically. Right. And that's, uh, I was just thinking when you're talking about that, you know, the whole like trace DNA sort of thing and that they can't find any and like, you know, at like the start of the rivers that I can just see some, you know, like people that are really trying to hide from everybody like, no, we're only drinking water from like from the spring or from this tributary because <laughs> nothing else, is, you know, they won't find our DNA. And you got to go to some pretty, you know, if you really want to be like 100 percent like disconnected, untraceable, you have to go to some very, very big lengths. Like that's crazy. Yeah. And then it becomes the cost benefit analysis. Yeah, for sure. Is it really worth it? So there's things you can do without being extreme, but Absolutely. I, think, I think it's important that we talked about this today because yeah, it, it's good to know. We oh, totally, you don't yeah. have to be an expert in all of this, but it's just good to know all the possibilities that are out there. And again, I'm not saying don't do your ancestry research. I think it's fascinating. And for a, lot, yeah. a lot of people, it becomes a passion of theirs. And, oh, totally. Yeah. But um, just keep in mind that depending on your profile risk, that uh, some of the, sometimes that information can end up in, in hands that you know, you may not have thought about going into it. For sure. And yeah, you can find an option based on whatever risk you have, how nervous you are about it. And, you know, it's a cool way, especially, you know, like the ancestry one, finding out, you know, more an idea of like these estimates, like where your family comes from. It's a pretty easy way, you know, to find out some of that stuff and be like, oh, cool. I have family that's from, you know, from Germany or Denmark or, you know, Portugal or wherever else. Yeah, this has been awesome. I appreciate yeah. your time doing this, uh, Colin. Any, anything else you wanted to leave with us before we shut her down? Nothing really that comes to mind. I want to watch that movie Gattaca now with talking about all this DNA. Did you ever see that? No. It's one. It's more on like, I guess, for more controversial topics, it's about, you know, this whole idea of like designer babies and changing the D oh, baby's yeah. DNA to have, you know, like the kids that are like, you know, the most healthy as possible, pick the eye color and all that is, it's interesting. It's I don't know, kind of a deep movie, but and that, if you're into that, watch it. And that with a, uh, what, what was it, the Neuralink chip that uh, Elon Musk is, is creating that you put in your brain and you don't even have to, you don't even have to study a new language. You just immediately start speaking French just, tomorrow. Wow. That's. And that they will, will all be uh, superhumans. That's, that'll be cool. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that might, I don't know if that shorts out. I don't want to be, have that in my head if that happens. <laughs> Hey, no more school. That would be a way to go, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. I don't like, have to spend uh, you know eighteen years growing up. I could just put that chip in my brain. Yeah, like <laughs> let me let me go put the let me go put my doctorate SD card in here, and we're good to go. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. This has been great, Colin. Hey, thanks. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the growing concern around just how much cars know about our daily lives. According to Mozilla's recent study of 25 car brands, every single one failed consumer privacy tests. In fact, 84% of car companies studied were found to be reviewing, sharing, or selling data collected from car owners. What information is being collected, you might ask? Well, in some cases, medical and genetic data. In others, the intimate details of your sex life. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.